If you want to open up your Bibles, please, to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. And we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts, or hard, that Moses wrote this law for you, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray as we come to your word now that you would guide us in truth. Lord, that you would speak to us. And Lord, that you would impart your grace to us today. That we might grow in our walk with you. That we might love you and serve you uh, and honor you more and more in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This is why... I'm convinced that a church needs to hear the word of God and not the words of man. It's because of scriptures like this, really, uh, that convince me of that need. Because if it were up to me, a mere man, or any of you, the likelihood is we would avoid a text like this, like the plague. And we would prefer instead to skirt around it and head over to some nicer texts that give us liberty to share on the goodness of God and all the things. But I want to show you today why it's so, so necessary for us as Christians to really rejoice in all of Scripture. Not just the verses that we prefer, but all of it. Because all of it, brothers and sisters, whether it feels palatable or not, really does speak of the glory and the goodness of God. Amen? And so I think that today, if you're coming into the church and you are married, I believe that this message is going to speak fresh life into your relationship with your spouse. If you're coming in here today and you're not yet married, then I believe that this is really going to help you to see marriage, the covenant of marriage, from God's perspective. And if you're coming in here today and perhaps you've gone through a divorce I believe that this message is actually going to bring grace and encouragement and love into your life. 
strange as that may feel when we read those words. So I love the Bible, amen? And I love the way that the Lord speaks to us about all these challenging topics. So our passage today comes as Jesus is traveling down from Galilee where he has spent all of his ministry up to this point and now he is traveling back south. He's heading towards Jerusalem. His heart is set on Jerusalem and this is the part now in the book of Mark when we really do begin to build up to Passion Week. Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem and we catch him here on the east side of the Jordan in a land that was called Perea. If you look at an ancient map of Judea, you'll see that this was actually east of the Jordan where he was. Uh, so the Jews being there, um, this, this, is, you know, this is usual. This is a kind of near the place where Jesus would have been baptized potentially by John in the Jordan. And it features a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees on the subject of divorce. And as I say, it's a subject that is always going to be sensitive to discuss. But I want for us to do the best that we can to understand what's really being said and to honour this word of God to us. Because through understanding what Jesus is saying here, I actually believe we're going to come out with a clearer understanding of what marriage really is and of what marriage truly isn't. And as I've said already, so I think, If you're unmarried here today, it's really going to help you to frame the whole situation of marriage better. And I think this message has grace and encouragement for all of us, whatever our situation might be. Because Jesus doesn't just address divorce in this text. He is addressing the very subject of relationships between men and women, which is vast. You know, we've we've read many books, haven't we, in culture about relationships between men and women Relationships between men and women tend to be the the focal point of nearly every fiction book you ever read. Every film you ever watch has this dynamic between men and women happening in it. And this is what the Bible has to say on the subject. And we live, of course, in a broken world. Amen? We don't live in a world where these relationships are perfect. How many of you have experienced a level of hurt or brokenness in a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Yes, I think we all have over a certain age, haven't we? And that's because we live in a broken world. And wherever we find people, it doesn't matter how nice they seem, wherever we find people, guess what? We're going to find sin. We're going to find brokenness. And so that means wherever we find relationships in the world, even inside the church, brothers and sisters, there's going to be a level of brokenness and sin in them. Okay? Just because we are Christians doesn't mean all of the sin and brokenness leaves us immediately, does it? Though we're saved instantly, we still walk through life tripping up, don't we, and making mistakes. And so that means that even as Christians, our relationships are not perfect. They need work. So I want to say firstly that the best way to have a healthy relationship, to have a healthy marriage with someone else is firstly to have a healthy relationship with God. That's, that's your number one rule right there. Is I think if we want to really see health in our relationships, particularly with a significant other, with a spouse, 
it's, it's super important that we focus first on ourselves and our relationship to God. And I think it sounds a very simple thing to say, doesn't it? Well, of course that's right, Pastor Graham. We all know that, and, and I'm sure that you do. But we forget it every day again, don't we? We need reminding that actually if we want a healthy marriage, which is the second most important relationship that many of you will have after your relationship with God, your relationship with the Lord has to come first, doesn't it? If we want to have a healthy relationship with our spouse. And so I believe that's got to look like something. That relationship with God has to look like something. It can't just be something that you say you do. It's got to be something that you actually live out. So I'd encourage all of you today, even if you're not in a relationship, you're not married, begin to look to God. Begin to cultivate a healthy relationship with him. And I'm telling you, if you do ever come to a time when you are married, you'll be in a much better place to give of the best of yourself to that person. I remember um, that I was uh, probably 18 and I left home and went to volunteer for Youth for Christ. Uh, did a gap year for Youth for Christ. That's how I met my wife, Becca. And I remember in a session about halfway through the year, um, Gavin Calver, who's now the head of the Evangelical Alliance, at the time he was our kind of gap year boss. And he was only about two years older than us. And how he did that job, I don't know. But he sat all of us lads down in a room and he talked to us about relationships. And all of us were wanting, we were all sort of wanting to know, you know, what's the most important thing, Gav, that you need to see in this future spouse? What, what do we need to know? And, you know, many of us were kind of... Uh, you know, eager to kind of like make relationships with these wonderful young ladies and many of us probably barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> but Gav, I'll never forget what he said to us. He said, um, you know, so many young men and young women in church, they make the mistake of thinking that simply because someone is in their church and they come along fairly regularly and they're attractive and they're kind of attracted to them that there can't be anything, you know, nothing could ever go wrong with that. Right? They make the tragic mistake of thinking, this person goes to church, you know, they, they come along every week and, and they're very pretty. And I think, you know, if we got together, it would just last forever because they're a Christian. Um, sadly, that's not always the case. And you can make a tragic mistake just through thinking that church attendance alone makes someone a Christian. Right? We, Gav challenges us to look deeper. What are these persons' values? What do they value? Right? Do you see a real passion for Christ in their life? Do you see not just church attendance but prayer? Do you find that this person brings you closer to God or actually puts a boundary between you and God? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask when we're looking at the question of marriage. It's not just about attractiveness, is it? And you know, to tell you a funny story, in that gap year uh, where I met Becca, we had to do four weeks of training down in Luton at a university. We had to do four weeks of training where we'd have lectures every day, 
We'd get to know one another. It was a really intense time. And um, at the time, uh, Gav Calver and his wife, Anne, sat me down and, and said to me, there's no way we're going to put you in the same place as Becca. I think there's something to that effect. Or maybe they said this later on. I think they said it later on, actually, in the gap year. They said, we were never going to put you together with Becca because you were such an outrageous flirt. <laughs> and, you know, guilty as charged. They said, we were never going to do it. We were going to put you as far away from each other as we possibly could. But they said the night before we were due to, um, you know, due to kind of put you all where you were going to go because you didn't have a choice about where you went in the country. They could put you in a Youth for Christ centre in Scotland if they wanted uh, or in the south of England. And they were like, we were going to put you as far away as possible um, because we just thought this is going to be an absolute car crash if we put them together. But they said, we prayed about it and we really felt a strong word from God that you two should go together. And we just thought it was so mad that it had to be God. <laughs> so we ended up doing the gap year together. And of course, after a number of years, we ended up getting married. And uh, so we're grateful for their prayer. <laughs> we're grateful for them hearing God in that situation. But it was something that we did. You know, we looked not just at our compatibility in terms of what did we find one another attractive it, it was more than that it was is this person going to bring me closer to Christ is this person going after God right and also do I get on with them do they understand me these things are important as well amen now to understand and I think I just wanted to say that because I think I understand there are some young adults here maybe not all of you here today but young adults in this church that aren't yet married this is good stuff for you to hear, right? We don't want to enter into marriage foolishly. We don't want to end up in marriage because we've been swept up by emotion. You know, I know churchgoers and Christians that got married at 18 because they were just infatuated with one another and five years down the line, it's, it's all ended in tears. And so, you know, as young adults, it's really important, isn't it, to to consider these things and like Gavin and did to pray about them really to commit these things to God so let's move on shall we to understand what Jesus is really saying about divorce here because I do want us to understand this because I think this text has been tragically misunderstood very often by people and has ended up in a lot of pain causing a lot of pain for people so we've got to really try and understand what's being said here to do that we have to understand something about the background to the question that the Pharisees ask him, right? So when we understand scripture, when we're reading scripture, there's lots of layers to it, aren't there? There's a layer at which sometimes God may speak to us. It might be just one of those kind of now words from God where God really says, this scripture's for you today. I'm speaking to your heart through this scripture. There's another, another level to it where we need to understand what that text meant to those who originally read it. And then there's even another level where sometimes we need to understand something of the historical and cultural background to the time in which that passage was written. Now what's germane to this discussion is that in the first century AD, at the time of Jesus, there was actually a whole big debate that was rolling about divorce. A massive debate was rolling between certain rabbis and Jews about the subject of divorce. And there were two positions in this debate. There was one position that was held by people that followed a rabbi called Shammai. There was one rabbi called Shammai who believed that it was only proper to get a divorce if 
one of the spouses, one of those in that relationship, had been unfaithful, who'd been, um, you know, who'd been caught in adultery. So he would say that's the only time at which a divorce is permissible amongst Jews. And then there was this other group that followed a rabbi called Hillel. Now Hillel, he said this, this is written in the Talmud. He said, um, he said, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. <laughs> for it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Anything, okay? So the Shamites, they focused on the word indecency. If the husband finds indecency in his wife, he may send her away. The Hillelites focused on this word anything because the text says indecency in anything. So they went, well, it's, it could be anything. It's whatever the man finds to be indecent. She spoiled his dish. She didn't do her makeup very well. And therefore, it's lawful for me to divorce her. And then there's another rabbi called Rabbi Akiba. And he said this, I want you to pin your ears back. And women, I want you to pray that you won't be, uh, you, you won't be caused to stumble. Ra rabbi Akiba said this, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if he f she find no favor in his eyes. That's a, another rabbinic text. So you've got these, these positions. You've got this debate happening. All around this question, the Pharisees ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You've got this whole debate going on behind it that we have to understand, right? So does this help? Is this starting to make things a little bit clearer for you? This all comes back to an Old Testament text found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read uh, from the NIV. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. It says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now this text isn't actually super clear, is it? it it's, a, it's a very long convoluted if-then clause. Now in the law, in the Old Testament, what Jesus goes on to explain, he says, Moses didn't give you this law as a pretext for divorce. What he means by that is basically, Moses didn't give you this law so that you could figure out the best way to get rid of your wife that you don't like, right? Because this text in Deuteronomy 24 is actually, it's really talking about a very unusual situation where a man divorces his wife for something that he finds in her that's indecent, whether that be sexual immorality or whatever, sends her away. And then it says, if she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another, and then if this second man either dislikes her and divorces her or dies, then 
she can't come back to the first husband, right? So what this law is about is actually a very unusual situation and it's saying if this strange situation were to happen, here's what you don't do. Here's what you don't do, okay? Because in the law, in the Old Testament, what God is trying to do is trying, well he is, not trying, he is setting the parameters for what it means to live in holiness, right? But at the same time, even in the law, even in the law, Jesus says, through saying he did this because of your hard-heartedness, even in the law, God allows for the hard-heartedness of his people, right? He knows that they're going to foul up. He knows that they're going to get into a bind on nearly every issue of the law. So when you read the law, you often find these kind of quite strange if-then clauses. Have you ever read Leviticus 14? And it's talking about the cleanness of a house or like the skin conditions, right? And it will be like, if this, it, it's pretty gross. It talks about like, you know, if the, you know, if the boil begins to do this thing, then do that. And because in the law, you've got all of these laws that take into account certain things that might happen. So this text, Deuteronomy 24, is certainly not a pretext for divorce. It's actually something that God wrote because he understood that in the sinful hearts of these people, this could happen. A poor woman could be divorced twice, right? And then her first husband, for whatever reason, might try and take her back. And it's saying, no, this is, this is wrong. This is sinful. Don't do this, okay? So it's actually a really unusual text. So when the Pharisees ask this question, they're actually trying to catch Jesus out. They're actually trying to get Jesus to betray which side of the debate is on. They're saying, Jesus, are you a Shamite? Or are you a Hillelite? Are you somebody who believes that divorce is only proper when infidelity has taken place? Or are you one of these guys that says, you know what, she spoils your dinner, send her away. Send her away. I know there's some men in here that are looking at me now and sort of thinking, hmm, which way, which way is Pastor Graham going to go on this? Well, I'm not a Hillelite, I can tell you that, because Jesus wasn't, okay? So they were trying to trap Jesus by asking him his question. They were trying to get him into the debate Okay, now, as I said, this text that they center on, Deuteronomy 24, it's, it's not a pretext for divorce. And Matthew's gospel actually carries this very same conversation. So in Matthew 19, verse 3, we've got the same conversation being recorded. And it says this, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. You see how that's different? So we've almost got to supply those words in this passage in Mark, okay? So when Jesus responds to the Pharisees about divorce, we've got to have this for any and every reason in mind to help us understand what's actually being said. Because when Jesus responds, he actually doesn't side with the Shamites or the Hillelites, does he? He doesn't go to Deuteronomy 24. He goes to the book of Genesis. He goes right back to God's created ordinances, God's created design over male and female. He goes to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then 
Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Wow. These are the foundations of what it means to be human, aren't they? Jesus gets them to focus on what God's original design was in human relationships. He doesn't get them to focus on what's permissible, right? What's permissible in marriage, but on God's original design for marriage. Now, there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? There's a lesson for us. Because if we're coming to Scripture, trying to figure out what we can get away with, we know we're not reading Scripture the way Jesus read Scripture. Amen? (laughs) Or if we're coming to Scripture with an axe to grind, We've got this belief in our hearts about the way that things ought to be and we just want the Bible to confirm what we already believe. We're not reading the Bible like Jesus read the Scriptures. Jesus teaches us not to go to Scripture looking for a pretext for some kind of behavior. He teaches us to search for God's heart in the scriptures. What was God's design? What was God's idea when he made us? Amen. He wants us to look for God's purposes, for God's design, and then work out from there. And that's why I believe that Reformed theology has so much to teach us in this day and age. Because in this day and age, everything that we learn in the world is centered on you, on the individual. It's all about how to be a better you, you know, and nothing wrong with that. But Reformed theology, people like Luther, people like Calvin, Zwingli, and then the Puritans, they had a God mindset. These were men who believed that all our ideas about what it means to be human shouldn't flow out of ideas about being human, but out of ideas about God, right? So if we understand who God is, we'll understand who we're supposed to be. If we start from us and trying to understand who we are and then try and reason up to God, you can see how we're going to get things wrong. Oh God, it's not fair that you should be like that. God, it's not correct that you should decide this and that and the other or make this judgment because it's not fair. Because I've got this desire in me that I want to fulfill and I feel it's right that I should be able to fulfill it. How dare you say that it's sin for me to do so? That's how people get in such a mess today. They don't start with God. They start with themselves and what their, their preferences are and what they like to do. And then they reason up to God about what he should bless and what he should ordain. We've got to start the other way around. Jesus shows that marriage was God's idea. It wasn't man's idea. It wasn't Moses' idea. It was God's idea. It was he who created it. And it is he who is Lord over marriage. Jesus is Lord over marriage. Do you know that? Not man, not you, not your spouse. Christ is Lord over marriage. One commentator said, said this, According to Jesus, it's neither man nor woman who controls marriage, but God. He is the Lord of marriage. What God has joined together, let man not separate. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, it's God who joins a man and a woman together in marriage. Even though it's humans that do the actual service. He's saying God is the one behind the whole institution 
of marriage. There's far more depth to it than we would let on or understand in this day and age. So many people think it's trivial, don't they? This is just a piece of paper. It's just a legal ceremony. You know, it doesn't really mean much. But God says and Christ says that it is a sacred covenant in his eyes. Marriage is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's when two people essentially become one in God's eyes. Marriage isn't something to be mucked about with. It's not something to enter into lightheartedly or flippantly. Amen? It's something that is very, very sacred in the eyes of the Lord. And we see in this day and age, don't we, marriage being treated in a very different way in the world of celebrities. You know, people getting married, getting divorced, then getting married again, then getting divorced again, then getting married again and getting divorced again, sometimes all in the space of 15 years. And I went before this sermon and read through um, some articles of celebrities talking about their marriages that had fallen apart. And it's very sad. It's very sad to read this. I don't laugh about it because it's very serious. And these people say things like, yeah, it just didn't feel right. That didn't feel right to me any longer. I, I didn't love him anymore. I just didn't have feelings for him like I used to. Or we just weren't able to give the marriage the time and effort that it deserved. Jesus is saying, listen, don't get married. Just don't get married unless you're absolutely committed to making this the most important relationship you have apart from with God. Don't do it unless you're committed to it. He's saying marriage is of God. Marriage is serious. Marriage is for life. He's saying, no, you can't just send her packing if she cooks your meal badly. You can't send her away if you stop fancying her. No, you can't divorce him if you've stopped finding his jokes funny. <laughs> yes, you, Mr. Sinclair. You can't get a divorce if you're both too busy to make things work. Stop being so busy. Stop being so busy. Start investing in your marriage. Jesus actually goes further than this Shamite view. He goes more conservative than the most conservative view at the time. Because I want you to understand, at the time, there were some very liberal views about divorce. Divorce was practiced often in the ancient world and actually we have evidence to even suggest that women, even in Jewish society, could divorce their husband. So though it was a very patriarchal society, very different to the world we live in now, even then a woman could divorce her husband. We've got evidence of that but by and large it was a very patriarchal society and women were viewed largely in the ancient world more like possessions, uh, very often treated like chattel, really, like possessions and abused very often by these men. And you can see the Pharisees, can't you, almost looking for a reason to do this, right? Lord, give us an excuse. Give us an excuse to sin. And Jesus wouldn't give it to them. On the other hand, didn't, Jesus didn't outright outlaw divorce, did he? He didn't outright say, never, ever divorce. 
In Matthew 19.9, Jesus having this same conversation, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus sees that one legitimate ground for divorce between a man and a woman would be infidelity, would be sexual immorality. And I think also, you know, obviously we all know that text in scripture. It says God hates divorce in the book of Malachi. And very often I think people have been really hurt by this verse being misapplied. Women have come to pastors having suffered severe abuse and have been told God hates divorce. They've been beaten. They've been abused in many other ways for many, many years. And they have had this text thrown in their face and have not been heard. And we have to understand, brothers and sisters, God hates sin. God hates sin. Do you think God's happy for abuse to go on within a marriage? Do you think that makes him happy? I don't think it makes him happy. I think abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, whatever it is, God takes every bit as seriously. And Jesus does allow for divorce on the grounds of infidelity. I believe, this is my view also, that divorce for a Christian uh, could be something that results as, as a period, out of a period of abuse. If one partner is being abused consistently, uh, I cannot see how the Lord would say, you must never divorce that abusive, intolerant pig. I do think that we have to be careful how we apply these texts. I do think, however, that what Christ is saying is that the marriage is a sacred relationship and that it ought to be the very last port of call. Divorce ought to be the last port of call. That we always ought to look for ways to reconcile before a divorce takes place. That would be my understanding, even if it meant between two Christians, a period of separation, a period of prayer and trying to figure out how we can make things right. I think that would be what Christ would say before you hit the divorce button. And Paul also gives another reason, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So with regards to marriage, Christ points us not to the law, but back to creation. Back to original design. Back to God's heart for marriage. That it would be a blessed and holy relationship that it would be inviolable, that it would be the strongest, most important relationship that you have apart from your relationship with God. 
And this is what Christ points us to. And this is also the life that Christ points us to. He doesn't point us back to Sinai, does he? He doesn't point us back to the law, but he points us back towards God. He points us back towards Eden, a restored relationship with God in in all things. I believe Jesus also spoke to the, the value of the woman in the relationship, that she is an equal partner with her husband in the marriage, that she is not chattel to be discarded whenever the husband pleases. I believe he speaks to that, to the value and the right of the woman in the marriage in what was very often a patriarchal society. I believe Jesus spoke to protect vulnerable women in that, that period of time. But ultimately, as I finish, I believe that this picture of marriage that Jesus was talking about is further fleshed out in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. And I, I want to speak this to you, church. I'm going to read this passage out because I think, again, it always helps to reframe our hearts, to, trans- to renew our minds even about what marriage is all about. Amen. So this is Ephesians 5, <clears throat> 22 to, 20 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage, therefore, brothers and sisters, is a sacred image of the very relationship between the church and her husband, Christ. A relationship which in there is ultimate security and perfect love on the part of Jesus, the head of the church. This is the picture, isn't it? The ultimate picture of marriage is this picture of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, us, his groom. And in that marital relationship, there is no fear of divorce. No fear of being cast away by Christ. Let me read to you from John 6. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Hallelujah. 1 John 1 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, brothers and sisters, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 1 John 2 verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our model for marriage is Christ and the church. How much patience does Christ have with the bride of Christ? How much grace does Jesus have for his spouse? How much forgiveness? How often does Christ forgive and forgive and forgive you for your sins? How does Christ treat us as his church? Does he not purify us? Does he not follow us with goodness and mercy and kindness all the days of our life? Does he not love and cherish us? Does he not build us up? Does he not encourage us? This is the model for our relationships with our spouses. To build up, to encourage, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be kind, to be generous, to be loving, to be a safe space for, us, for our partner, for our spouse. Let's stand. I'm going to invite Dave and, and Mike and uh, Ant to come now. In a moment, we'll sing together. But I want, to, I want to just open up an opportunity for you all. I don't know where you're all at with this uh, in your lives, whether you're married, whether you're not. But I want to say to those who are married, I count myself in this. How can we become more Christ-like in our marriage? How can we treat our spouse more like Jesus treats the church. If you're unmarried today, how can you seek God in a more foundational way, in a more honest way, so that when the time comes for you to be married, you'll be prepared. You'll be ready to give of your best for that future husband or wife. If you've gone through divorce, how can it be that you receive today Christ's grace and love and forgiveness? How about you remember how Christ treats all sinners with grace and forbearance and kindness and love? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word to us today. We thank you for your grace, your love, and your kindness to us, which never runs out. As the scriptures say, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lord, as we covered this difficult subject today, we pray that through it, grace would flow into this church. And Lord, that we would see healthier, happier marriages. And we would see, Lord God, forgiveness and mercy and restoration come for all who've been hurt in abusive and damaging relationships to know that you are not adding and heaping up judgment upon them too, but you have a kind word for them. We pray you would bless each relationship in this church. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.